uh, look to the Lord and say, speak, O Lord, as we come to you to think about the fact that when the word of God speaks, it is God speaking to us, um, God speaking in our individual lives and addressing our lives as Christians as to um, we, when we come to know what the will of God is for our lives and what the will of God is in our Christian walk, how we are to walk as Christians um, in this journey, um, in our pilgrim's progress. Amen. Um, let me say uh, happy anniversary to Mr. and Mrs. Makokwe. Uh, we wish you um, a joyous day and we pray that God will continue to strengthen you and to keep you together um, in joy, in, in love, and in a marriage that, is, uh, that, that, that speaks of the gospel. That speaks of Christ loving the church and the church's submission to Christ. The beauty of the gospel in marriage. Amen. Amen. That is, that is uh, something that we, we want to see in the church amongst us as believers. Um, today we are studying a new series. Um, we are studying a new series called A Church After God's Own Heart. A church after God's own heart. So it will not necessarily be an exposition of particular of, of just one passage, but it will be more going through different passages, just trying to see what um, the Bible says about a church after God's own heart. It's going to take about um, several weeks to get through the whole series. Today will be will be more of an introduction to um, the series that we are going to be dealing with, and um, we are going to be looking at a church after God's own heart, and then. Um, as, as the weeks um, passes by, we'll be looking at what are the, 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 the characteristics or what are the marks of, of a church after God's own heart. We'll be looking, them, um, we'll be looking at those details, um, those uh, characteristics in detail. So today, um, we're going to look at a church after God's own heart. And before we do that, I just want to read from Matthew chapter 16 and um, finding the words of Jesus Christ in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 16 when he talks about building his church. But for the sake of context, I will read from verses 13 to verse 18. Let us look at the word of God as he speaks to us this morning. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 13 to 18. And... I just want us to take notice of what Jesus Christ says in verse 18, and then we'll continue, not necessarily um, explaining the passage in detail. I read from the ESV. This is God's word. Let us hear him. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon, but Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven, in verse 18, what we're going to be, uh, or what we're just um, looking at, and, and this is going to be uh, the spring verse of the whole sermon. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. 
and I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. This is the word of God. Amen. Let us pray. Our dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you. We thank you that you are the one who speaks when we look to you, O oh God. You are the one who teaches us obedience and true humility. You are the one, O oh God, who shapes us and sharpens us through your word and who edifies us and um, grows us, O oh Lord. We pray that you may continue to do that even this morning as we look in your word, O oh God. Open um, the eyes of our hearts, O oh Lord, that we may behold wonderful things in your word. We pray that we may delight in your commandments. We may delight in your word as you speak to us even this morning. Be with me, Lord, as I declare your word. Give me clarity of speech and clarity of thought. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray all this. Amen. The church is a bride preparing to meet her groom at the altar. This is one of the metaphors that the, the Bible uses to refer to the church. It refers to the church as a, a bride of Christ. And as a bride of, of Christ, in this present moment, this present age, she prepares herself for the Lord's return. And, and ultimately, she prepares herself to spend eternity with the Lord. However, even though that is the case, Jesus Christ did not leave his church to prepare on her own. He has provided or has left the necessary resources for that task. Out of his love, out of his care and affection for the church, he has given all these resources that the church would prepare to meet her Lord. He has given his spirit to help us walk in his commands. Secondly, he has given us his word to help us grow in our knowledge of him and our knowledge of his will. Thirdly, he has given us the ordinances of baptism and, and the Lord's Supper. And in the washing of baptism, in his name, we, it, it declares the, 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 the sprinkling of his blood and the renewal of his spirit in us. And, and the ordinance of the Lord's Supper openly and emphatically proclaims the virtue of his dying and the glory of his cross. And, and lastly, he has given us the practice of church discipline to, to confront and, and restore members who are in sin and also to remove those who continue unrepentant in sin. These are evidences of the care, of the love of, of Jesus that he has for his church. They testify that Jesus Christ cares and loves his church. When he said, I will build my church, he continues to fulfill that task. He continues to fulfill that promise, and he fulfills that promise through all these resources, through all these means of grace that he has given the church to continue preparing herself. And because this is the case, we must be compelled to study the scriptures as to what 
God's desire is for his church. We, 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 we must have that, that we, we, we must be compelled. We must have that desire to know what God desires for his church. It, it must be our desire. It must be our, our, our goal, our, our aim to be a church after God's own heart. It must be something that we aim for each and every day. We, we have a goal to be a church after God's own heart. And the question that logically follows then is, what is the importance of studying about a church after God's own heart? What is the importance? Why is it important to, to, to study about a church after God's own heart? What is the significance of it? I want to give you three reasons for studying about a church after God's own heart. Three reasons about studying, uh, uh, three reasons for studying about a church after God's own heart. First, we, uh, is that we know what our focus should be. Secondly, we know how to relate with the world. And thirdly, we are warned against drifting from God. Let us look at the first reason for studying about a church after God's own heart. We know what our focus should be. We know our, what our focus should be. When we consider the first letter Paul wrote to the Corinthians, we, we come to understand why it is important to, to know what our focus as a church should be. You see, the church in Corinth had lost sight of what their focus was supposed to be, and they ended up focus, focusing on things that at the end of the day did not honor and glorify God. They lost focus. They lost what uh, uh, um, the focus that God had called them to, to, to focus on. And I want us to focus, uh, to, 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 to consider one of the things that um, was happening in the church. It's found in chapter 1, verse, uh, verse 10 to, to 14. Uh, there, in this church, in, in Corinth, um, there was a spirit of division. And the spirit of division was as a result of, of uh, having a party spirit. Look at verses 10 to verses 14. Paul writes to, to this church, he says to them, I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and, and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you. What I mean is that each of you says, I follow Paul. Or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or, or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So, so, so Paul addresses these issues in the church because when they lost focus, or when they lost focus on what they should be focusing on, they started to divide as a church. Paul is saying to them that this division disregards the lordship of Christ. It dishonors the name of God when a church divides over petty issues. It shows that we have lost our focus 
our true focus as a church when it, when it, um, when it comes to these issues. In this case, we see that the church was divided as a result of losing focus. What follows in the next 13 chapters is, is an account of what was happening in the, in the church as a result of, of losing focus. As you read First um, Corinthians, the whole of the letter, you get to see how the church was messed up as a result of losing focus. They started to divide among themselves to say i follow paul i i follow cephas i i follow apollos they they started to become uh, divided there was no love in the church as a result of losing focus they were not focused on the gospel anymore there was pretentiousness of of being spiritual People started pretending to, to be speaking in tongues when, when they were not really speaking out of the Holy Spirit. Because they lost focus as a church. And in chapter 2 of 1 Corinthians, chapter 2, verse 2, Paul reminds them of his own focus. That although the Jews demanded signs, they, they, they wanted to see miracles, they, they wanted him to, 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 to perform signs, and, and the Greeks sought wisdom. They, they wanted him to proclaim the, the testimony of God with lofty speech and, 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 and worldly wisdom. They, they wanted him to speak like the worldly philosophers. But Paul says to them in verse 2, he says, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Look at those words. For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I believe this should be the focus of a church after God's own heart. We should focus on Jesus Christ who is the wisdom and the power of God. We should focus on the crucifixion because it is the center, it is the heart of the gospel. If we lose this focus... We will become like the church in Corinth. This should be what we concentrate on as a church after God's own heart. To know nothing except Jesus Christ and him crucified. As a church, we must be single-minded in our devotion to Christ and recognize the foolishness of giving our affection and loyalty to other things. Listen to what Bruce Milner says. He says that God's love is so deep that it cannot tolerate rival affections. God's love does not want competition. You cannot love God and other things your, your love for God must be a 100% kind of love. It must be a complete love for God. That's why when Jesus Christ says, you must love the Lord your God with all your what? Your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength. Not some of your heart. All of it. So our focus must be defined by God as he revealed in his word. 
think about history for a moment because when we forget history, we are bound to repeat the mistakes of, of history. Think about the, the, the 16th century. The, the cry from the 16th century reformers was that the church should go back to the main thing that it was called to do. The, the, the discussion that was uh, prevalent in those times was on what was the true church. That was the discussion they were concerned with. They were, dis they, they were concerned with what the true church was, with how to identify what the true church was. And this was important to look at because they noticed <clears throat> that the church was shifting away from its true calling. When you look at the Roman Catholic Church in the 16th century, it had completely changed the image of the church for what it was in the first century. The authority of the church was no longer scripture alone, but the claim was that the pope and, and church tradition were also authoritative. They had authority. In fact, one of the defenders of the Roman Catholic doctrine by the name of Johann Eck said in his debate when he debated against Martin Luther, he said this, listen to this, he says, even scripture draws its power and authority from the Pope. <coughs> Meaning that the Pope had the authority to change any part of scripture. He could change any part of scripture as he wanted, anytime he wanted. And that is where the doctrine of indulgences came. Let me explain the doctrine of the indulgence, what it is. This is how um, Michael Reeves explained the doctrines. He says, in medieval Roman Catholicism, medieval times uh, was in the 1400s, um, right to, to the 1500s, to the Reformation age. In medieval Catholicism, when a, a sinner went to confess to a priest, the priest would demand that various acts of penance be performed. Any sins for which penance had not been performed in this life would have to be dealt with in purgatory. Now, purgatory was a Roman Catholic doctrine that says that between earth and heaven, there's another place where believers are cleansed for, for a couple of years before they enter heaven. They say that, uh, so the good news was that there were, no, there were saints who had, been so, who had been so good, not only that they had enough merit to get into heaven by passing uh, purgatory altogether, they had actually had more merit than they needed to get into heaven. This spare merit was theirs, sorry, this spare merit of theirs was kept, as it were, in the church's treasury, to which only the pope had the keys. The Pope could, uh, could therefore give a gift of merit to any soul he deemed worthy, fast-tracking the soul's path through purgatory, or even leapfrogging purgatory altogether. Initially, these full indulgences were offered for participation in the First Crusade, but soon a gift of money was deemed penitential enough to merit an indulgence. It became increasingly clear in people's mind a bit of cash could secure, a sp could secure spiritual bliss. 
to summarize this, it meant for a little fee. One could sin as much as they wanted. You could sin as much as you wanted and still have the, the doors of heaven swung wide open for you because you paid the Pope and the Pope authorized it. Because you bought an indulgence and the Pope said it's, it's fine. As a result, this gave people false hope. And, and they, it gave them false hope that they could gain an entrance into heaven because of money. You could just pay your way into heaven. In other words, there was no need for repentance. There was no need to repent of sin. Just pay, because the Pope says so. So the reformers responded to these unbiblical practices by calling the church back to biblical Christianity. Their call was that the authority of the church is not tradition or, or the Pope, but scripture alone. And that salvation was not by works, but by grace alone, through faith alone, as revealed in the scriptures alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. You hear that? The Pope had no authority. Church tradition had no authority. Our authority as the church is founded on what? On the scriptures alone. Not the scriptures end, but the scriptures alone. And this is the truth that we need to recover for our times. Isn't that what we see today? Where people call themselves men of God? who say, I have a word from God and whatever comes out of the mouth is just total nonsense. When they say, God told me this and whatever they speak contradicts the word of God. We need to recover this truth to say, what is the authority of the church? The authority of the church today and tomorrow and forever will always be scripture and scripture alone. Nothing else. If it is not in scripture, it is not of God because God revealed his word in scripture and gave it out of love and care and affection for the church. And as a church after God's own heart, we need to make this our focus. As a church that wants to be a church after God's own heart, this is the foundation we stand on. Amen. We stand on this foundation because we will never be moved when we stand on this foundation. The winds of false doctrine might blow as hard as they blow, but when we're standing on the foundation of scripture, we're going to stand strong. It's a truth that we need to recover in our time. If we are to be a church after God's own heart, we need to seek God's definition of what a church after his heart is. And this leads us to our second <clears throat> reason why it is important to study about a church after God's own heart. Second reason why it is important to study about a church after God's own heart. 
We, we know how to relate with the world. Amen? We know how to relate with the world. <coughs> Our relation with the world is, is twofold. First, it is, it is negative. It is negative. And, and secondly, it is, uh, it is positive. Let us consider the negative perspective first. We, we find this point in the words of the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Listen to what Paul says to the church. He says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. You see, Paul was aware of the temptation that believers faced to conform to this world. And this is because although we are not of this world, we currently reside in this world. And so Paul calls the church, saying to them, do not conform to this world. Other, 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 other translations say, do not conform to the pattern of this world. In other words, don't be molded by the world. Let not your thinking be influenced by the thinking of the world. Let not your speech be influenced by the speech of the world. Do not conform to the pattern of the world, to the, way, to, to the world's way of doing things. And this echoes God's words that he spoke to Israel through his servant Moses in Leviticus 18 verse 3. Listen to what God says to um, the Israelites as they are on their journey to, to Canaan. And this is what he says. He says, you shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived. And you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. God is saying, do not copy them. Do not do what they do. Do not walk in their ways. The idea is that our presence in the world as a church must not be characterized by seeking to imitate the world, but by seeking to be more and more like Christ. Dr. Wayne Mack in his book, Life in the Father's House, says these words. He says this. He says, the quality of a church is not measured by the condition of its buildings or the appeal of its services, but by the state of the people themselves. The quality of the church is measured by the state of the people themselves. They are the church. So the church is only as good as they are. It, it is heartbreaking when the church, in an effort to, to reach out to the world, starts to conform to the world. It, it starts to become like the world. In an effort to be relevant, in an effort to, to show the world that we are not boring right? We, we start to act like the world and start to, to do what the world does. 
we, we use entertainment thinking that it is the way to go. Thinking that this will bring people to God. Many years ago, Many years ago, A.W. Tozer warned about the new wind blowing across the fields of, evangelical, of the evangelical church. Listen to what he says. <clears throat> he says, if I see right, the cross of popular evangelicalism is not the cross of the New Testament. Listen to this. It is rather a new bright ornament upon the bosom of a self-assured and carnal Christianity. The old cross slew men. The new cross entertains them. The old cross condemned. The new cross amuses. The old cross destroyed confidence in the flesh. The new cross encourages it. How many times do we hear in pulpits today where people say, trust in yourself? It's not in the Bible. The Bible is not calling any Christian to trust in themselves. There is a cross, but it is not the cross that Jesus Christ died on. There's a cross, but it is not the cross that saves Something has gone terribly wrong in the church. Something has gone terribly wrong. In, in an effort to reach out to the world, we diluted the message of the gospel and, and borrowed the methods of the world. It, it, it is only in our generation that you, you, you ever hear of a comedy show in a church where the church invites the world to come to a comedy show. Not to hear the gospel, but to hear someone telling jokes on the pulpit. It is only in our generation that we hear such. Something has gone terribly wrong. Instead of revealing God to the world, we started reflecting the world. We need to be reminded afresh of these words. Do not be conformed to the pattern of the world. This is the negative perspective in our relation with the world. It gives us insight, again, as to why it is the case when we look at the positive perspective. When we look at the perspective, the positive perspective in our relation with the world. The positive perspe perspective is that we are to reach out to the world. The negative is that we are not to conform to the pattern of the world. The second perspective, the positive one, is that we are to reach out to the world as a church. Before Jesus ascended into heaven, or to heaven, he gave the church a commission to reach out to the world with the gospel. Matthew, 19, Matthew um, 28 verse, verse 19 says this. It says, Go therefore 
and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. Although this, um, this passage we are going to look at in, in great detail when we continue with this, um, with this series, I want us to, to, to look at a few observations. I want us to, to observe a few things in this word, and I want to observe three things. First, what we see in this passage is that it was not only a charge to the disciples in the first century. Because Jesus promises his presence to the very end of the age, which leads us to conclude that it is a charge to the church in every age. He didn't say, I will be with you until 90 AD. He says, to the very end of the age, meaning that it is a charge to the church as a whole. Secondly, it requires action from the church. It requires action from the church. The church is to go and make disciples, not to wait and let them come in. Jesus Christ is not saying that, right? We are not like Israel. Israel was a go and show mission. They were to show by the presence of the temple in Jerusalem, the, the beauty and the brilliance of, of the temple where people come into Jerusalem. But the mission of the church is an, a, a go and make. You see that? That's the difference. It's a go and make. In other words, we are not to, to wait for people to come in so that we can evangelize them and make them disciples. If that is the case, it is inevitable that the next thing that will happen is that the church will eventually die. If we don't evangelize as the church, in the next few years, the doors are going to be closed. Thirdly, this charge is not ethnically bound. It's not ethnically bound. Listen to what Jesus says. He says, go and make disciples of what? All nations, right? All nations. Meaning that it is, it is not a people that are in my culture alone that I should share the gospel with. But the church says, make disciples of all nations. And this gives us an idea of what the face of the church should look like, doesn't it? People from all nations coming together for one purpose, to worship the one true God in unity and diversity, to worship the one true God in truth and in spirit. People from every nation, tongue, coming together, one purpose, one God, united, but diverse. If we are to be a church after God's own heart, then we need to know what God's heart is for his church. We need to know what we are to look like, what our relation to the world should be like. 
that we should not conform to the world, but we should reach out to the world. Which leads us to our third point as to why this is the case, we are not to conform to the world, or uh, why we, we should reach out to the world. Uh, the, the third reason why we need to study, why it is important to study about a church of the God's own heart is that we are warned against drifting away from God. We are warned against drifting away from God. You see, there's a great danger of drifting away from God if we do not make it our aim, our goal, to conform ourselves to God's desire for his church. To, to drift away from God's desire for his church is to cease to be a church. There are churches that um, Christ says that they are synagogues of Satan in Revelation. He does not recognize them as the church. He says they are synagogues of Satan. I want us to consider what Jesus Christ says to the seven churches in, in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. These are letters that he writes to, to these churches, um, to these seven churches. But I want us to, we, for the sake of time, just to zero in on, on two churches and to specifically focus on the problems that Christ points out in these two churches. First, we'll look at the church in Ephesus. The church in Ephesus in Revelation chapter 2. The church in Ephesus, you, some of the verses you can read on your own at home as you review um, the sermon. Church in Ephesus, we find it in verse 1 to, um, in chapter 2, verse 1 to verse 7. But let us look at verse um, 2 to 4. In, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 2 to 4, Jesus says that the church have lost their first love. That is the problem. They lost their first love. The problem for this church is that they started well off enough as a lampstand and, and a witness for Christ. But they have since lost their enthusiasm, their love for Christ. They, they lost their enthusiasm and, and their love for Christ. They do what is required. But their heart is no longer in it. And so their effectiveness as a light to the world is diminished. Isn't that the, the case that we see most of the time? Where we do what we are supposed to do, right? It's, 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 it's no longer out of love for Christ and out of enthusiasm and out of love for the gospel. It's, it's, it, it, it has become a routine. It has become Sunday after Sunday. Where January you were standing tall and 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 you 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 bending a bit bending a bit to show that this is really weighing you down. It's not out of love. It's just out of duty. Until December, you're like this. With this church, Jesus is concerned that love for Him must continue. And that, and that love is best demonstrated in carrying the light of the gospel to the nations. He calls them back to their first love. 
Secondly, it's the church in, in, in Pergamum. Pergamum. We, we see that church in verses 12 to, to verses 17. And the problem is found in verses 14 to 15 in this church. You see, in spite of, or let me read verses 14 to 15 first. He says, but I have a few things against you. This is, he's talking to the church in Pergamum. I have a few things against you. You have, you have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might, they might eat food sacrificed to idols and, and practice sexual immorality. So you also have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. See, in spite of their faithfulness, in the midst of persecution, Jesus raises two serious issues with them which he finds fault. He, he uses the Old Testament account to explain the problem of accommodation to the world. They were accommodating the world. In the midst of such dislike of the Christian faith, no doubt that Christians were trying to minimize the way they stood out from the surrounding society. They had not given up their faith, but they no longer stood out from the crowd. And, and they had begun to compromise in various ways with the pagan society. Jesus uses the account of Balaam and Balak that is found in, in, in Numbers chapter 22 to, to chapter 25. You see, Israel's sexual, um, sexual immorality and involvement with pagan gods is then described again in, 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 verses, in Numbers chapter 25, verse 1 to 3, and in, in chapter 31, verses 15 to 18. We see that Balaam was responsible for leading them astray in this way. Balaam had given, uh, had given way to the pressures of the surrounding societies. Now, even here, in Greek cities of John's time, there were many temples of, of the gods. Gods dominated the, the culture in such a way that even in order to trade, people would need to be part of trade unions, which usually involved um, worshipping a particular god and perhaps joining and in eating with the temples. The, the level of compromise had probably led to the sort of sexual immorality that would have been taken for granted in Greek society and, and those semi-religious um, occasions. It is not uh, clear the exact extent to which the, these Christians were prepared to accommodate for the sake of, of more peaceful life and to save their own skins. But perhaps they were even offering sacrifices to, to images of the emperor, feeling that it didn't really matter. They, they felt like it didn't really matter, for their faith was in the true God, and it was firm. That's what they believed. Again, Jesus also mentions the teaching of the Nicolaitans. The teachings of the Nicolaitans. It is likely that they specifically taught that practices which involve sexual immorality and eating meat offered to idols in the temple were not important and simply didn't matter. The problem for this church was that they were prepared to live with people who held to those teachings. They were not taking any disciplinary action against false teaching. They were fine with sin in the church. 
Therefore, Jesus accuses or blames these churches for not taking action against those who, who hold to such false teaching and yet continue to worship. You can read the, the rest of the, what, what Jesus says to the rest of the churches by yourself. But one thing is clear when we look at um, some of these churches. They lost sight of God. They lost sight of the desire of God for his church and were following their own way. They were following their own path. They were not as passionate about the things of God as they once were. I remember writing in my diary a, a, a long time ago, I, I, I was going through a dry moment in my Christian faith. And, and one thing that I said, I said, I remember when I first came to the Lord. I remember what a joy it was. What a joy it was to, to just meet a stranger on the road and tell them about the Jesus who saved me. But as time progressed, I started to lose that desire. I started to become dry in my spiritual life. And I wonder if you're there. I wonder if it is you in that moment where you can do everything. You can, you can, you can do anything. You can talk about almost any subject except the most important subject that is a matter of life and death. That passion that you once knew of, of, of being in Christ, of, of knowing that Christ loves you and, and, and knowing that Christ still saves even today and wanting to tell the next person, gone. I wonder if that is you today. Jesus is talking to these churches who lost their passion their desire for him. These churches who were tolerating sin in their midst and, and not dealing with sin, saying, I don't want to be judgmental when sin is present in the church. But one thing that you notice from these seven letters is the love and, and care of Jesus for, for these churches as he calls them to repentance and that, that they may not drift further and further away from God. May you personalize this this morning. Just, just take stock and, and just look at your life and just, is, is your faith burning with, with passion? For, for, for the lost is your faith burning as it used to burn when you first came to Christ. May you personalize this as you seek to honor God because we are a church. It is not the building. <laughs> the building that just protects us from from um, the word and, and everything out there, but it is not the church. The building is not holy. You are the church. 
the gathering of the saints. You are the church. If we were to get out of the building right now and be on the parking lot, we would still be the church. Do we want to be a church after God's own heart? Uh, 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 may this be a, a great encouragement to us as a church and may it help us to, to grow in, in areas where we need to grow, areas where we see that uh, we lack in this area, to consider areas where we need to improve and, and strengthen ourselves as the church. You see, the truth is, although in this world we will never be a perfect church, but I believe, truly believe, that we can be a church after God's own heart. Amen. Yes, Lord. You said, on this rock I will build my church, and you continue to do that, O oh God, through the preaching of your word, through the gathering of the saints, when we encourage one another, when we participate in the ordinances of baptism and the Lord's Supper when we come together, take your word seriously, hear the gospel, take the gospel to our communities, our colleagues. God, we pray that you help us, oh God, to, 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 to remember what your desire is for the church. God, may we remember your word and may it burn in our hearts, oh God, with such fervency, Lord. Restore our passions for you, oh God, our desire for you, Lord. May you glorify your name, oh God, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.